Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. I've raved about Baron Vaughn on my website for years as a multi-talented comedian and actor, and 2016 is allowing him to reach even greater heights. He plays Bud on Grace and Frankie alongside Joan Fonda and Lily Tomlin, which begins its second season on Netflix this May. He'll provide the voice of Tom Servo in the much-ballyhooed reboot of Mr. Science Theater 3000, which raised more than $6 million via Kickstarter. And Baron co-hosts the popular podcast Malton on Movies with film critic Leonard Malton on the Earwolf Network. Bear and I go way back, and he takes me all the way back to the beginning. So let's get to it! No, this is Last Things First, and my guest is Baron Vaughn. Smello. Thank you for being here. It's been so long since I've seen you. Yeah, so person. so very very long, but uh, here we are you once went, again. You went all Hollywood on me. That's what they call me, Hollywood Baron Vaughn. Now, <laughs> you can't actually say my name legally. You can't actually say my name without the word Hollywood in front of it. So, 2016 is shaping up to be a pretty good year for you. It's been a long long haul, wouldn't you say? <laughs> but doesn't doesn't that make the payoff sweeter? In a way, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because there's all this. What's interesting is that we, the personalities, drawn towards comedy. You know, we're sensitive mofos. We're sensitive. That's right. why we became funny in the first place. It's a reaction to our world. So then when we get to this place in our careers where we're trying to have a career, where we feel or I perceive I'm being lapped by certain people, I get mm. so sensitive about it. Right. And go like, well, why not me? But all that's all that is fake. It's all imagination. And it's just about... For me, at least, I found out it's just like, well, if I'm engaged in this experiment to become a good comic, why does that have anything to do with anyone else? It actually doesn't have anything to do with anything else, with anybody else. It only has to do with if an audience is enjoying me or not. So I struggle with that still. But comparing myself to others, as um, Stuart Smalley once said, compare and despair. All my all my life exam all my life advice is gleaned from Al Franken characters. <laughs> uh you're, one of the things you're doing now is a podcast with Leonard Malton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember the first movie you saw in a theater? The first, oh, the first movie I saw in a theater. Yeah, when you were a wee little Vaughn. Wow. The first movie I saw in a theater. I mean, it had to be a Disney movie. I, I want to say the earliest movie I can remember seeing is something like Beauty and the Beast, because um, that came out in the eighties, didn't it? Late eighties, yeah. Yeah, late eighties. The ladies. Um, there's got to be something I saw before then, because I remember going to the movies in New Mexico, and I, when I was in New Mexico, I was really young. I moved from New Mexico when I was eight. Okay, so, so you I, didn't spend yeah. your entire childhood in Las Vegas. No. just the just formative the, years. Just the formative years, exactly. Went through puberty in Vegas. Wherever you went through puberty, that's where you're from. Oh, okay. That's, that's how good. I always think it. Because puberty is essentially, it's when you start. It's when you start thinking about how you stack up in the world, your position in the world, your position against other kids, right? In your class, and you start thinking about, well, where do I fit in? And that, that's when you start 
really developing your personality, I feel like. So when that happened to you in Las Vegas, yeah. what did you imagine your adult life to be? Oh, isn't that crazy when, you, when you're like six and like, when I'm in my 30s, if I'm still walking, right. that's an old, decrepit age. When I grow up. If I'm in my 30s and don't have a walker, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be a combination fireman, astronaut, president, uh, F-A-P, or FAP. That's not an expression in any other language. <laughs> um, what did I envision my life to be like? Yeah. Um, you know, I probably, when I was a kid, I probably envisioned, because I was in a very, very small town. In New Mexico. So I probably envisioned that just kind of like, well, I'm going to get old. And everyone I know is everyone I know. And I'm going to, we're all just going to get older and always know each other. And going to get a job at Los Alamos. And yeah, uh, I'm going to get a job at the lumber yard and um, go to church five times a week. Is that what you were doing? Southern Baptist man. Oh, wow. Southern Baptist man. You're in church all the time. Um, you'd, you'd sleep at the church if you could. So did moving to Las Vegas, did that activate the entertainment? You could say that. You senses know. in your brain? Yeah, you could Being say Being around that. all of those that's, neon lights? That's and absolutely correct, I think, Sean, because it's like going to Vegas. And, and the idea that people had their name in lights, the idea that there was such a thing as a marquee, this constant feeling of there's performers, there's performance, and people are out there doing that, and right. people like them. And I've never – even if – no one in the country has heard of them. Everyone in Vegas has heard of them. You're still, like, even like a local, like a local news anchor is like a local celebrity, right? So it's just sort of that world of, oh, we can, uh, I can do this. You know, like this is something that people can do, and there's different levels of success. I guess I got a sense of that when I was in Vegas. Is that not only can you become this, but there's different levels of how you can do it. What age were you when you first tried stand up? Well, no. Well, what was the first thing you tried? Was it singing, acting? Yeah, it was. It was acting first. I mean, because I was attracted to acting because of because I was attracted to stand up, and I was like, oh, people on stage saying words—that's the exact same thing. And being in a church play, you know, somebody asked me a long time ago when was the first moment that you knew that you were right. an actor, and it was probably the nativity play at church, and how, I was Wiseman number three. No how, lines. How old were you? Oh man, I had to be five, five or six. Um, but you still had costumes and we had costumes. I hair had hair and makeup. And I had spirit gum on with a beard, mm. and I was Wiseman number three, the one that brought myrrh, and uh, had no lines. The three Wisemen come in, and the first Wiseman says, "We have brought you frankincense, gold, and myrrh." Right, and uh, I just watched the kid fuck it up, and I was like, "Oh my god, he's putting he put nothing in it. <laughs> he just said it." Oof. You're not alive in the role, man. I was, I was five. No emotional center. And I was like, I could do that better. And that's the, that's the, that's the patron, the, the patron catchphrase of an actor, of someone who wants to get on stage at least. That's also what, what I hear and know from a lot of comedians is, is not seeing someone inspirational doing comedy, but someone being awful at comedy and going, oh, I can be, if this horrible person can be on stage telling jokes, I should, I, can be, I should be up there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it also, like, it took me a while to get on stage. You know, like, I didn't do stand-up until I was in college. And I wanted to do it early. I just didn't know that it was something that you could do. You know, I was still that, that school of, of person that believed that I believed, I believed that. I believe um, in love after leave. After leave. Um, 
these people are making it up as they go along. Like I thought that stand up was improvising and that these people were just had turned themselves into people that were so funny that they could just go up there and talk and everyone thought they were hilarious. And I'm like, wow, how do you even get to that level? Like I thought it was a it was a magical power, you know, a mutation. Well, it is. It is, but I didn't know that it actually takes some gumption. Right and some work, and that everyone had is honing their craft, preparation and, and yeah. memorization, and, and thinking about what they want to talk about. And there's a workshop process, so I didn't know that you just had to go get on stage and start it. And if I would have known that younger, I probably would have done stand up younger, like sixteen, seventeen. So instead, you pursued acting. Did you do plays in high school? I did. I went to performing arts high school in Vegas. Okay. So I did. I did plays and directed some plays, stage managed some plays. Um, I was always involved in some way because I wanted to see all the different aspects of how to create how to create the theater. Um, what led you to Boston then? Theater school. Theater okay. school, definitely. Because in in again, in high school, I thought to myself, I knew because I had people in my face telling me, some family members in my face telling me, pursuing performing arts as a career is a giant gamble. But hey, I'm from Vegas. <laughs> Sometimes a gamble pays off. Am I right? You go put it all on black, and in this case, I'm black. So <laughs> put it all on me. And my grandmother, especially, was she was supportive. I'm not sure that she liked that I was going to go to school for performing arts, but she liked that I was going to go to school. She kind of saw it like sports. Okay. Like if you get good at sports, you can get a scholarship to a good college. You right. can actually get an education. So. She didn't poo-poo on it because she figured I was going to go to school, get an actual education, become cultured, right. and be able to participate in society or put something forward that was worthwhile. Um, totally wrong. Now it's just dick jokes. Now it's just dick jokes and yogurt. But in her mind, it was whatever gets you in the door. Yes. You're in the door. Yes. It doesn't matter yes. what's getting you in the door. That's how I see it now because I was afraid that she was not going to be supportive of it, but she was incredibly supportive of me going to school I mean, going to college and getting a degree no matter what it was in. Did she want you to have a – did she enforce, like, a backup plan? Like, if this doesn't work, go into accounting or um, you know, or entertainment law? She didn't or? enforce it. Mm -hmm. um, there was always talk of a backup plan. Like, my family would – they would pay lip service. Mm -hmm. But they maybe saw that I was dead set on this. And I also, you know, foolishly believed – because some people say, if you have a backup plan, you'll fall back on it, bro. Mm. But I figured that I would if, – if it didn't work out, it just wasn't going to work out, you know, that – and I still think that. Like, you never know. Well, you joke, you joke about still to this day, this very last night, you still joke about your credit and oh, yeah, college because, debt. And because that stuff is – even though I'm, like, doing okay, it's not like I'm out of debt. I keep getting, like, letters from New York saying, hey, you owe us $8,900. I'm like, what? From when? From 2008, we just made it up. We like it. But anyway, we're suing you. We're seizing your funds, and we're going to take it out of your bank account. Mm. So I got the state of California and the state of New York on my butt about back taxes. I still have student loans. I got sued you know, for student loans, taken to court in Boston where I don't live. So I, f I failed to appear at the hearing of me getting sued in Boston. FTA. And then they uh, were awarded. It was a $4,000 um, award they wanted. But since I didn't show up, they were awarded 8000 it was like, oh, they're allowed to have get twice as much from me because I don't live in Boston anymore. What a clever way to, to trick the law. 
creditors. And then um, they were like, you know what? We'll be nice, though, and we'll just take 6500 So they ended up making $2,500 more off of me because I didn't show up to Boston where I don't even live. They took me to a court in a place I don't live, and I didn't even know they took me to court. Anyway, our, our uh, credit system. And this system, is with you doing well. Our, yeah. No. Our credit system is doing incredibly well. So well, when you were in college and you were racking up these debts, yeah. what gave you that initial confidence to start doing stand-up? Well, I, um, I was pretty good at improv- improvising. improvising? Mm-hmm. I believe that's how you pronounce it. That is, um, that is co or ect. Yeah, I guess the thing is that, like, when I was in theater school, you know, I was very curious about improv and organized a couple different workshops and read all these books. And people could see that I was interested in – they thought I was funny already. I was a naturally funny person. And I also was honing the skill set, I believed, of tapping into that natural comedy that I think everybody has. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I was in Boston for a summer, you know, just like – working random jobs and whatnot in between school years, this guy who worked in the office said to me he had been going to open mics and he could not believe how bad people were. He's just kind of like, he's exactly. like I'm telling you, people are going up there and they're saying, take my wife, please. First of all, that's hack. <laughs> Second of all, it's not even their joke. You can't do someone else's joke. Right. And he was just floored with, he didn't even, he thought that open mics would not be as amateurish as they were. And that gave him the courage. And he's like, I'm going to start doing open mics. He's like, you know what, Baron? You're funnier than all these people in conversation. You should just start going up there and see what happens. And I was like, oh, I can go do open mics in Boston. And I never even thought of it. And then I started thinking about all these comics that I knew started in Boston, that I was aware of that started in Boston. People like um, Dennis Leary, people like Stephen Wright. People like um, Paula Poundstone, like just all these people that I watched that I was like, oh, all these people started in Boston. Boston is known as a comedy town, and I didn't think of that until someone's like, you should go do open mics. Then a friend of mine had done this theater festival in western Massachusetts, Williamstown. And at Williamstown, at the time at least, every summer, Louis Black would come and like host all these different cabaret shows. And he would also do a class. He would do a comedy class. For a lot of the students that were around, you know, because there was a lot of theater cool theater, and students. he was a playwright. Yeah, he went to Yale for for playwriting. Right, and so he has a Yale graduate degree in, in playwriting, and he's had plays produced as well. And so, airplane, airplane, you know that it's insane. I refrain from mentioning an airplane in my mainframe. Um, airplane's gone. Little puddle jumper, as my grandmother used to call him, or I'm not getting in that. That's what she used to call him as well. Um, so, my friend had taken this class at Lewis Black because Lewis Black, as far as I know, I've never met him. I've met him once, but like I don't know him. Right. But he's very much about passing on things in an oral tradition. He's very much about it's very well and good to teach a class and you know to write a book. But to him, it's the elders pass on the knowledge to the youth, and they do with it as they please, and they become the elders and do the same. So he taught this comedy class, and my friend had taken this class with him, and then he imparted some of the lessons to me. So it was the kind of one-two punch of my friend saying, yeah, Lewis Black told me that if you're going to do comedy, you do these couple things to start out. And it just was sounded sensical. You know, he was just like, tell a funny story. 
don't don't and you haven't you've had something funny happen to you don't tell me oh i don't have any funny stories yes you do right have you been alive are you a man are you a woman <laughs> are you catholic do you have parents have you ever walked down a street right. and something weird happened <laughs> have you, you ever been embarrassed story? yeah you have a funny story so I started thinking about that and started thinking about the things I want to talk about and how I want to talk about them and um, started going up. Where, Dick Doherty's Comedy Vault. Okay. Doesn't, is that, I, I believe it recently closed. It doesn't exist anymore. Remington's Restaurants on Boylston Street. Yep. And they had the vault downstairs. And it was a Sunday night mic, slightly bringer show. You had to bring two people that paid seven bucks. Okay. Right? As far as bringers go, that's not horrible. Right. So... It's f- now that I'm looking back on it, probably 10 of the comics, because there were like 16 freaking comics on the damn thing, probably 8 to 10 of the comics were bringers, like myself, college students who had to bring two friends to fill out the audience. And then the rest of the comedians were actual Boston comedians that needed a place to go up. And so it was a combination of open mic for Pro, for pros and people who are doing comedy from six to ten years, and then people like me who are getting on stage for the first time, bringing their two friends on a Sunday night, thinking, oh, Sunday's the only night I have off. I can actually go to this thing. And that's that was the beginning. Did you move to New York immediately after college, or did you stick around Boston? I stuck around for, a, I stuck around for the summer um, and into the school year, the beginning of the next school year, because I was doing a play. So it was like school started in September. I probably September, October. Yeah, probably October, November, I was moving to New York. And when you moved to New York, were you moving as a comedian or as an actor or trying to do both things? It was both. I was fortunate enough to move to New York um, with a job. Okay. That I knew I was going to be doing a play. On Broadway. It was my first job in New York. That's a good first job in New York. A very good first job. But I also knew that it didn't start until January. So I wasn't in a rush to leave Boston because I knew I wasn't needed in New York until January. And I, actually, the summer after I graduated uh, BU, I worked at this um, bed and breakfast in Cambridge. And because they also gave you a place to live, there's like a little room where I could sleep in. And then all I had to do was get up at 7 a.m make coffee and make breakfast for the people that were living there and then that was it and go into their rooms and redo the bed and like change sheets it was very easy i was just the one person made you know and went in there and did that and i looked like shit i was <laughs> now that i think of it i was like this 22 year old black kid that had this huge half row that i was just waking up not doing anything being like hi and just making pancakes <laughs> the least amount of effort and people were just like well there's definitely a bed. I don't know about this breakfast, though. <laughs> and um, it was a free place to stay. And then I was doing this play in Boston. So then I just kind of did that. Uh, and then, yeah, basically until October. And I'm still doing mics, you know, getting up where I could. And then moved to New York probably about November. Because I was like, November, December. And then in January, I'm going to be needed for this play. How long did the play run? We, rehe- we started rehearsal in January. It ran until it started in March, mm-hmm. and then it ran until April. So it was only like two months. Oh, because okay. it was the Manhattan Theater Club, and they were doing something new. Because essentially, a Broadway theater is just a place that people can rent, which is why 
a show can run for 10 years. If they're making money and they're paying the rent, they can just stay there as long as they want. They don't have seasons. Broadway, play, Broadway theaters don't have seasons. Right. However, off-Broadway theaters do. They're usually a theater company that also has a theater, and they program their year that way. Manhattan Theater Club was one of these theaters. So they would have off-Broadway plays, and if a play was really successful, they would flip it to Broadway. Okay. But then they decided, well, why don't we build our own Broadway theater and program a season of Broadway theater, which is what they did with the, with the Biltmore. So it's the, as far as I know, I don't know if it's the only one. I think it might be the only theater on Broadway that actually has a season programmed. So the run of the play was only a month and a half. So then we rehearsed it, and basically in April I was done. And I was unemployed, and I was like, well, Broadway play, uh, don't know what to do. And then a Boston comic friend of mine was like, well, I'm leaving this job at this law firm. You want it? And then I worked at a law firm for a year and a half. Was that your last day job? That was my last day job. What was the, what was the last moment at that job where you're like, I don't need to be here anymore. I'm going to well, be okay. When I booked a national commercial, and I filmed it, and I was like, I knew I was going to make a lot of money from it, and I was going to be able to leave that job and concentrate on stand-up full-time, and just going to auditions. But the thing about booking a commercial, at least at the time, I don't know if it's true anymore, they don't tell you when it's going to air. So you film it, and then they're like, it'll show when it shows, because they have no idea. Right. And it was six months. I filmed the thing in like October, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until the next April that it was on TV. Do they withhold the money until it airs? Or Okay. I get paid for shooting it. And it's like a thousand bucks, right? Like a like, sad. So you get an upfront fee, and then yeah, and then once you once it starts airing, you get residuals, and that's the real money. Right. So it wasn't until the end of April that I started getting those residuals, and I was like, oh my god, I can leave this job. Like I'm making this money, I can leave this job. I can pay my rent, and they 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 threw me a going away little thing, and they got a um, a cake for me. Oh. And it said congratulations, except they misspelled it. <laughs> it said D. No, they added extra TUs. So it said, congratulations, congratulations, and that was the moment I was like, I am so happy I'm leaving this place. <laughs> did they know you were an aspiring yeah, they did. comedian actor? Okay. Yeah, they did. So they put up with whatever nonsense you were doing. Yes. They're like, oh, well, he's, he's going to be a big star. They, as long as a certain amount of work got done a day, mm -hmm. they were okay with me like going to auditions and coming back and stuff like okay. that. What was that commercial? It was an AOL commercial. Oh. America Online, remember that? I I vaguely remember. Turn it on. It was like ill got mail, and then they made a movie about that, that with was Meg voice? Ryan and uh, Tom Hanks. Um, your voiceover talents are yeah, stupendous. It was me and this guy named Owen Burke, okay, who is now the vice president of development at Gary Sanchez, which is the, the right, uh, funnier die and the, yeah, Gary Sanchez. It's Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's production company. So he's like a high ranking executive. And my first commercial was with this guy because he's also – he's a UCB Yeah, guy. he came up through the UCB system. And it's just a brilliant improviser. It was just him and me improvising around a, a, a AOL premise. They had, there was a script, but we, we improvised right. a lot. Well, one of, your, one of your huge gigs for 2016 is voiceover work. Oh, is it? With <laughs> Mystery Science Theater <gasps> 3000. <laughs> yes. How did, how did you get wrapped up in that? Um – a series of fortunate events to almost be Lemony Snicket. Um, Jonah Ray. You know, Jonah, Joel and Jonah were developing his friendship. Um, as Jonah tail, tails it, as Jonah tails it, we're in Texas, so every now and then southern, southern vowels come well, out. Well, you also have ducktails on the brain. So. Ducktails. As Jonah tails it, ooh. <laughs> um, 
Joan is a gigantic Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan, like right. a gigantic one. Um, as dedicated as the truest nerd. I think he was using the secret to make it happen. Yes. He, was, he had a vision board and a Pinterest. He's like, it and, will come back and, and I put, shall lead it. He put Joel Hodgson and Mike Nelson up there and he's like, if I build it, it will come. And so Joel, I guess Jonah had talked to him multiple podcasts about his love and Joel got wind of it and started hitting Jonah up about, you know, I'm thinking about redoing the show. I'm thinking about, you know, would you be interested in talking to me about it and mm-hmm. kind of thinking about how it could be done and Jonah's like yeah are you kidding me I would love that and then it turned into Joel asking Jonah to be the new person because Joel explained that it's his premise of the show is like it's it can have all these different iterations it can be like Star Trek where it's like it's a different ship but it's the same you know premise different crew you know but it's a different captain but it's the same premise so it still works in the paradigm right so then suddenly Jonah was in this position because of Joel of being the new guy, and Joel was very concerned about the chemistry. The chemistry between Jonah and the and Crow and Tom Servo right. has to be good, you know, as the chemistry was with Joel and his two people and Mike and his two people. So jo- he asked Jonah, "Who do you think would be great?" And he mentioned me and Hampton. We were his first choices, and so Joel met us, you know, pending a meeting and and seeing the chemistry that the three of us had. Joel was like, let's do it. So that's how it came to be. It's all about who you know, baby. It's all about who you know. <laughs> it is, in a sense. Sometimes. And in this, in this case, it is because, you know, people, there was, there's got to be this chemistry right. in it. But, uh, you know, I, people I knew- are upset about my voice. They're like, he doesn't sound like the Tom Zero I knew. His voice is not low enough. But the chem- it's about the chemistry. Right. Well, I mean, I, I always knew intuitively that people like to work with their friends. But now that I'm getting older, I'm starting to see this with my own peer group. So you, when you see it firsthand, you're like, oh, that, that's really how it works. It's- yeah, because you do get a sense of who you like working with and who you know how to work with. So it makes sense that people kind of create, if you will, a repertory company of the people that like, they like to work with, like John yeah. Apatow or Ben Stiller or you know whoever, that they kind of have a group of people right. that they, they know are going to deliver in this way. And they can write roles in a certain way. I mean, I'll probably do that, you know, as well. Because I got all these friends that are sitting around wanting to make stuff. I'm like, well, let's make a damn movie. And let's just do it, bro. <laughs> so I won't say bro. Good. A lot, of, a lot of the work you're doing, though, is working with people that you might have interacted with in a different way when you were a child. Seeing them on the screen or, like, you, you're interacting with the MS... T3K world, which you probably I watched. watched as a kid. Yeah, of course. Um, working on Grace and Frankie with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. You're doing a podcast with Leonard Malton, who's been doing movie <laughs> reviews since you were a kid. Yeah. I grew up I grew up to work with all these people that I used to watch. Or see their name in lights in Vegas. And now you're working with all of these people as a peer. Next on the list, Lance Burton. <laughs> Lance Burton. Vegas' his own. You know who Lance Burton is? Uh, yeah. Okay. Master he, magician. He, you know, before Siegfried and Roy made it a duo's act, Lance Burton was the guy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because it's like when I was coming up in Vegas, or when I was coming up, <laughs> when I was there, Siegfried and Roy was the talk of the town. You know, they were doing magic, and they had tigers, and they're miscellaneously European. And then then I felt like I heard about Lance Burton. But he might have been around at the same time, but, it, but him getting his own show. He's always yeah. kind of overshadowed. By Siegfried and Roy. By the flamboyance and the t- tigers. It also helped that Siegfried and Roy had a theme song that Michael Jackson did for them. 
and I remember it. Up a little bit. Siegfried and Roy. It was like, oh my God, it's Michael Jackson singing. They have a custom song made by Michael Jackson. How can you compete with that level of popularity? Well, you can't, like you were telling me earlier, you can't compete. You can't compare and despair. You got to be your own person, and that's how you become Lance Burton. Yeah. So, one, what is it like to be working with all of these people you grew up with? And two, question that I'll ask you later. Well, the number one thing that I have learned is that they are all people with their own triumphs and confidences and insecurities. And it first of all, it helps me feel okay about my own insecurities because I'm like, oh, it's okay to be insecure. It's okay to feel like I don't know what I'm doing because you have to ask questions sometimes and you have to ask for help sometimes and that's how you get it. That's how you learn. You can't just be like, nope, I know everything. Posture, posture, posture all the time. Deflect, deflect, deflect all the time. So there's that. But also seeing that they have so much professionalism that they're people who just get things done. So sure, every now and then you might feel bad or you might not feel confident, but also there are the things that you know that you're good at that you can just be like, well, I know what I'm doing when it comes to these things and you know how to deliver because you've been doing it long enough that you still have this career that people are still asking for content from you. And so it's okay to be confident in that as well and to be to sit in your power if you will, and be like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I know how to write a show. I know how to act. I know how to be funny. Um, so it's a nice reminder to, to see that these people who I've admired are also just people who are making their own way, and that that's what's going to be there for me as well. I'm who doing is, the same thing. Who has given you kind of the, the best help recently or best advice in terms of continuing this, this arc of your career? Um, who's giving me the best advice? Or what's... What's kind of been like sticking with you as you, you know, pursue all of this? Um, I wasn't there for this, but I overheard it on the Grace and Frankie set. And my co-star Ethan Embry was doing a scene, and uh, I think a lot of us were in it, but I wasn't just I wasn't in the section that he was with Lily and he was with Sam Waterston, and he didn't feel amazing about how a scene went, and he was just kind of like. Ah, it could be. He, he felt okay about it, but he's like, ah, it could have been this. It could have been that. It could have been better. And now I shot it, and like, ah, it could have been this. And he told me this because it helped him a lot, and it helped me. He said that Lily kind of gave Sam a look because they're in their seventies. They've been doing this for years, decades. Yeah. And she she said something to the effect of, ah, when I look back and I think about how much energy I wasted on that, just just this feeling that you're having. How much right. time I've wasted feeling that. And Sam Waters, it's like, I know. I know, right? Because now they just know, like, it doesn't matter. You know, you don't have to sit there and beat yourself up. And it helped Ethan. And Ethan told it to me because he thought it would help me. And I was like, yeah, that is great. Because it's because I'm going to be doing this for a really long time. And so what am I going to do? Do I want to have fun and feel okay? Or do I want to beat myself up about right. it? Right, stress about Every take and everything. Exactly. You do. Every exactly. joke. Because why don't oh, I, I just deliver that joke? Exactly. Better? And that that stress, that energy that I'm putting into the stress. How about I take that and make the joke better? How about I make it a joke or a uh, an interpretation of a right. role that I don't feel insecure about? I can do that. Were you able to do that after taping uh, this set at South by for Showtime? Oh yeah, to go I think oh, so. Yeah. It, 
It is what it is. It, it's yeah. It's funny too because I was very nervous about it because that TV taping energy is something very specific, and especially having done these late night sets and a half hour in Comedy Central where it's like there's language restrictions, there's content restrictions, so you kind of have to rewrite your act to not be what you would do exactly in the club because you can't cuss. You can't reference certain pop culture things or corporations mm. that might be a sponsor. Right. Oh, you can't make fun of McDonald's or Pepsi. So it's like, what? Now I have to change this whole thing and have to make it something different. But with Showtime, you know, with HBO, with all these different premium channels, there's no restriction. So there's that nervousness at first of like, ah, because I've been there where it's like I have to change the thing and I actually am not so sure about what I'm doing because I changed it. I've changed what it already was to something I'm about to do on TV to represent myself. But with this, there was nothing. So it was just like, oh, this is a show. Once I got up there and I got my first laugh, I'm like, oh, I know what the hell I'm doing. I'm a comedian. Just calm down and then wrote it like a regular show. Nice. So when you fulfill your destiny that Lewis Black foretold, (laughs) and it's your turn to impart the wisdom upon the next generation, what is the first thing you want to tell them well you know i already do that in a way like it's weird to say that i'm imparting wisdom but i've essentially i make myself available to the young black comedians that i see that are like me because certain comedians when i was coming up in new york made themselves available to me you know like dean edwards greg um greg greer barnes um dean edwards greer barnes mike yard uh mike Britt. Uh, Mark Theobald, Wally Collins. There were certain comedians that took a shine to me. They said they weren't like a lot of the other black comedians that were in their class that um, flew over me in an airplane <laughs> that didn't like that I I didn't do what they did, which is go to the urban rooms, come up that way, and then quote-unquote cross over into the mainstream clubs. I was doing something different. And these other guys that I named were like, I'm glad you're doing something different. What I, I hate what, that I had to do what I had to do, you know, but it's just what was afforded to me. Go where you're getting booked, of course. Why would you not go where there's stage time? There's, you, you don't owe anything to anyone. And so I make myself available to, like, younger comedians, and there's comedians around the country, you know, that I think are great that are doing interesting things, like um, Sam Jay, who's actually here, um, Rebecca V. O'Neill, Sonia Denis, um, you know, have asked me for advice, Will Miles, um, Martin Morrow, Ben Bazuna, um, just comics that I make myself available to that I'm like, yeah, if you want to ask me things, you know, because they see where I am. It's hard for me to see it because I'm there. And I'm like, uh, is this going to last? But they're like, oh, this guy got somewhere. But I'm just telling them, reminding them that you don't have to be what everyone says you are. You know, like you don't have there's, – there's no such thing as a black comic in a, in a sense. So you don't have to – follow any rules that someone is saying, well, you're this kind of person, so you have to be this kind of thing. You don't have to do that. You can do whatever you want, you know? And some people have told me that they saw me doing that and that, like, Jack Knight said, you know, he saw a video of me and he was like, oh, I can do stand-up. If I can do it like that, I didn't know you could do that. So I was like, oh, that's really that's really sweet. It's really weird to hear. It makes me feel slightly old. You know, I mean, I have been doing this 16 years, so now it's like, hey, I saw a video of you uh, on comedy uh, or like a uh, college humor, and I was like, oh, you could do comedy like that? And now I'm doing comedy. Thanks. I'm like, oh, <laughs> weird, because I still don't know what I'm doing. But yeah, sure. Well, Baron Vaughn, you definitely do know what you're doing. Why, thank and you, Sean. 
nobody does it like you do. You have a singular presence on stage. Oh, thank you. And I've I appreciate put that, that on the internet for years, and I shall enjoy continuing to do so. Damn right. So thank you for making yourself available to me. You know, one time there was this comic, Irish guy, Keith mm-hmm. Farnan. Do you remember him at all? No. He was in New York for a spell, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> back in the comics days when they had Mochi's Lounge, oh, yes. that downstairs room. <laughs> Mochi. He was hosting, mm-hmm. like, probably one of the Drink at Work shows maybe okay. they were doing there. And it was something that Carol Hartzell was producing. Mm-hmm. And he introduced me as, this next comic coming to the stage is a real comics comic. <laughs> and you're going to love him, Baron Vaughn. And I get on stage and I said, I'm a comics comic. That means that none of you are going to understand me, but there's going to be this group of weirdos in the back that are laughing at everything I say. And that's what a comics comic is. Oh, I will take that as a compliment. <laughs> it's a compliments compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Baron. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.